the radiologist looked at it and he's like, oh my gosh, something's wrong. Like, you need to go see a pulmonologist now. Lung cancer. It's a tough topic. It's a disease that affects patients, families, friends, co-workers. But first, it's a disease that affects people. The Hope With Answers Living With Lung Cancer podcast brings you stories about people living, truly living with lung cancer. The researchers dedicated to finding new breakthrough treatments and others who are working to bring hope into the lung cancer experience. It is a beautiful day here. Gorgeous. Blue sky, crisp, clean air, just beautiful outside. And it is a great day to be alive, don't you think? Absolutely. It's easy to feel that way on a beautiful Friday afternoon. But imagine how you'd feel on a gorgeous day like this if you were living with lung cancer. You know, I can't imagine that. It's it's amazing how... Our patient advocates tell us that learning to live with lung cancer is a daily challenge, but they've become experts in this. Experts in managing fear, anger, pain, and gratitude. All that comes with the increasing ability to live longer and healthier lives thanks to new treatments and therapies for lung cancer. That's right. You know how we just talked about how it's a great day to be alive? That is the email signature of our guest today, our first guest. Gina Hollenbeck is a Southern gal. She's darling. Wait till you hear from her. She's a nurse from Memphis, Tennessee, and she joined us to talk about how am I supposed to feel with lung cancer? She just has the most amazing outlook. So you know what? Let's just jump right into that conversation. Gina Hollenbeck, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Oh, thanks so much for having me. So it is really fun to be able to talk to all of these Speakers Bureau members. You've been a member for, for, you know, six months or just under a year. And we are so grateful for everyone's help on the Speakers Bureau. So maybe you can start by just giving us an idea of your lung cancer journey. Where, where did you start with this and what happened? So my lung cancer journey, it, it, it began in 2015, and I was um, I had gotten done running a 5K, and I was a half marathon runner. I was playing competitive tennis, um, and I was working um, as a nurse as the clinical director of a nonprofit, and I developed a cough that just wouldn't get, go away, and I wasn't really worried about it until I started losing weight. And to me, that was a red flag. And to me, that meant cancer. Like as a nurse, I knew like, so I started getting really worried. So the first thing I did was I went to my OBGYN and I asked him like, hey, can I have a chest x-ray? I think something's wrong. And he was like, no, Gina, you know, I think it's seasonal allergies. You're 38 years old. You're a never smoker. Like, no, like, I, I don't think anything's wrong. So he wouldn't do a chest x-ray. And I bugged his nurses and they hated me. And then I um, went to my hematologist. I had like a little clotting disorder. And so I went to my hematologist. And I said, hey, like, you know, I'm a nurse. Like, I think this is weird. I'm still losing weight. And it, it wasn't a tremendous amount of weight, but it was like five pounds and I wasn't trying. And my whole life, anytime I had tried to lose weight, I just couldn't. So it was really weird to me that I was losing weight. 
So then after I went to my hematologist and my OBGYN, then I went to um, my ENT and they told me I had gastric reflux and they said, no, you're 38 years old. You're, you know, a never smoker. You're an athlete. Don't worry about it. And then I started getting shoulder pain and I did work out quite a bit. Um, but the orthopedic doctor actually did take an x-ray of my shoulder and my chest in the same exact place where the tumor was. Um, and the tumor showed up in my lung, but they weren't looking at my lung. So they diagnosed me with a pulled muscle in my shoulder and sent me home with a muscle relaxer. But we could look at those x-rays later and see a little shadow of the tumor um, there. But they, like I said, they weren't looking at my lung. They were looking at my shoulder. So five people basically turned me down and said, no, you can't have a chest x-ray. You you're okay. And so it wasn't until... I um, had a friend who did x-rays and she uh, worked in a diagnostic imaging center. So I said, hey, can you fit me in for a chest x-ray? Like, I just want to look. Like, can we just look and see what's going on? And she's like, well, if you have a doctor's order, um, you know, insurance will pay for it. But if you don't have one, then um, we can just do it for you and you can self-pay. And I was like, look, I, I don't have a doctor's order. So I just self-paid for the chest x-ray. The radiologist looked at it and he's like, oh my gosh, something's wrong. Like you need to go see a pulmonologist now. And um, so I was armed with that chest x-ray report and I took it to the emergency room and I looked just like I do now. I looked like nothing was wrong with me. And um, luckily the ER doc read the chest x-ray report and he was like, oh my gosh, you need a CT scan. So he sent me back. We did a CT scan and um, then that, um, was very alarming to him. So he um, had a friend who was a pulmonologist who could get me in the next day. And so I went to go see the pulmonologist the next day. He did a biopsy. And then a week later, I was diagnosed with um, adenocarcinoma um, stage four lung cancer because um, my oncologist um, decided to get an MRI, even though, remember, my only symptom was cough. Um, he decided to get an MRI, and the MRI revealed that I had a very large tumor in my brain, and I had no symptoms of that whatsoever. So, um, yeah, so all of a sudden, I went from having a cough and to I have stage four lung cancer. And, you know, Gina, we're talking about how you're supposed to feel about that. I mean, that had to just be devastating, and yet you're such a positive person. How did you deal with it initially, and and how do you keep your positivity? It seems to me that was there a seminal moment that really made a difference for you that said, this is how I'm going to feel about this? I think for me, most of the time, I felt very frustrated that people didn't take the, my gut feeling seriously because I kept saying, I know something's wrong. Like, will you please do something? And I think that was, that was the most frustrating part. And when we finally found out that something serious really was wrong, I felt like I told you so, you know? And, um, and so then, you know, after I, I, I feel like I didn't give much time to be devastated. You know, I, I instead just decided that, you know, this is um, what I have been dealt. And so now I'm going to deal with it. And I felt like in every situation, I have this saying, and it's mutter stars. And in, it, in any situation, you have the opportunity to either look at the positive or the negative. And either way, you're in the situation. So you get the, the choice. And, um, and the saying goes, 
the same men look through prison bars. One sees mud and one sees stars. And so really the choice is yours is if you're going to look at the mud or the stars. And I just, you know, of course I was devastated that I had this disease. I was scared more than anything. I think that might be what what leads to devastation is is mostly fear and um i had fear that i was going to leave my children and abandon my children and my husband and you know those are the things that um were the hardest for me and i had never really dealt with anxiety but after my diagnosis we decided not to tell anybody for about a week we had this huge halloween party and we wanted all of our friends to have a good time we didn't want it to be about cancer and at that point we I thought I had 10 months to, to, to live. And that was the prognosis that I was given at MD Anderson. And so if I only had 10 months to live, then, you know, I, I wanted it to be the most amazing 10 months I've ever had. So I didn't want everybody sad and that kind of feeling. So we didn't tell anybody for about a week. But when I started telling everyone, I think just knowing that their reactions were all different, but occasionally people, I mean, they were heartbroken that I had this. Um, disease and like breaking people's heart was so hard for me like it was so that would get it gave me anxiety and so anyway I thought like I thought it was cancer like I didn't know what anxiety really was and so I like called my doctor's nurse and I was like my heart is beating out of my chest and I can't breathe and I don't I don't know if I should go to the emergency room and she's like Gina that that this is anxiety it's because you're telling all all of your friends so um you know so I think I didn't ever have a chance to feel devastated other than that anxiety of having to tell people. Instead, I was ready to fight. And that has just been kind of the way that I've been since I was born, you know, um, I decided, you know, when I set my eyes on a goal, um, that's, that's where I'm going and, and nothing's going to stop me. And I think I told my children that from the beginning too, is that um, this is, this is a yucky, nasty disease that mommy has, but you know who your mom is and you know that your mom has a lot to fight for and she, I'm going to do everything in my power to stay alive. And they see me doing that. And, and that's the truth. And to me, that's where research comes in. And, you know, actually I had a family member tell me today, like, why do you even try to fund research? You don't even know if it's going to work or not. And I said, you know, the truth is I know for sure it's not going to work if I don't try to fund it. If, I, if we don't try to um, give research a chance, then I know for sure it's not going to work. And the truth is some research does fail, but we'll never know and we'll never find answers unless we invest in something that, you know, could potentially change my life. And I kind of looked at him and I was like, you know, I don't have anything else past this drug. We, you know, we're kind of at a stopping point. And so it, I'm going to spend every last minute of my life, you know, working to fund research to help me and other people. And you know, think about all of the things that research can accomplish. Um, you know, without funding that, we we just, we have nothing. So um, anyway, I was, I was trying to explain him to that, you know, that to him, that it is worth it to me um, to, to make the investment, even if the research doesn't prove anything, at least we know, you know, we've, we've, uh, we've turned over that stone and we know for sure that that's something, you know, either good or bad, either way. You are just have such an incredible spirit. And I want to 
Can, um, I, can I say something real quick? Mm -hmm. For the people who can't see G. Yeah, she smiled through that entire, entire interview. I mean, glow. you're amazing. You are truly an amazing woman. Yeah, absolutely. I'm not. I'm not. You know who's amazing? I just got done at the National Lung Cancer Roundtable. There are so many people who are working on lung cancer, and I guess that just gives me so much hope. Um, I'm not amazing. I and I'm this one, you know, girl who is like, you know, I don't know, trying to raise money for for research because I truly believe in it. But um, there are a lot of people who are working so hard and, um, and like people like you guys, I mean, funding research is, is everybody's job. <laughs> you know, if we all pitch in together, then we can really make a big difference. Oh, that's so true. I want you to help somebody who's listening to this and maybe coming to the lung cancer space or have, you know, it's just early in their lung cancer journey. Explain the difference between the type of research and the type of treatments that you have access to today that didn't even exist five years ago, 10 years ago. That's right. So I, I'm out positive, which means I'm eligible for a targeted therapy. And when I was diagnosed in 2015, there were only two targeted therapies available. One was a first line called crizotinib, and the other was seretinib, which Across the blood-brain barrier. And so we were so excited that we at least had something that penetrated the brain. That was kind of great news at that point. Well, um, I think in 2016, uh, or maybe it was 2017. Yeah, it was 2017. Um, Electinib was the third line that got um, approved. And then rapidly, then we got Brigotinib and Lorlatinib. And so then we had five lines of therapy already um, approved and they got kind of fast tracked through the FDA and trust me like I could not wait for them I remember waiting on Lower Latin I was like please get FDA approved like before I progress again and just crossing my fingers um, about that so I'm so thankful for those um, FDA um, fast track approvals but you know just to think that in 2015 the two drugs that we had had a lot of side effects we'll just say that they, they had a lot of side effects and uh, one of them was, I mean, just nausea and vomiting. And when I started on um, Seretinib, I would wake up at 3 a.m. every morning and, and just, you know, throwing up at anything that was on my stomach. And, um, and, you know, I would sit over the toilet and just think, okay, at least it's working. At least we know it's working, you know, even though I was sick. And, um, I met um, Bill Westlake, who is another member of our group, and he was telling me about his journey, and he, he was diagnosed after electinib was approved, and which was the, the third one that was approved in 2016 or 2017, I can't remember. Um, but anyway, Bill was telling me, he's like, Gina, you know, I feel guilty because throughout my whole cancer journey, I've never even felt like a cancer patient. He said, I had a cough, and then the next thing I knew, I was on electinib, and I feel great on electinib. Electinib. So electinib had like virtually no side effects. And so it was so exciting to see how his journey was even just a year, you know, being diagnosed a year later than I was, was so much different because there was so much research put into these drugs and, you know, new therapies and treatments. So it was really exciting to see that change. Gina, talk to us because we use the term here progressing and the progression. Can you explain a little bit about what that means? to people who are just coming to us for the first time? 
Sure. So progression means at one point in your cancer journey, your cancer was either gone or stable. And then progression means that the cancer has basically come back or grown to some extent or come back in another place or something like that. So that's what progression means. When it comes to targeted therapies like what I'm on, it's a little bit different. The cancer actually is pretty smart and it grows resistant to the targeted therapy. So it kind of outsmarts and figures out ways around the targeted therapy and then that makes tumors grow. And so that's what we call progression when you're on a targeted therapy. But it's the same no matter what, no matter what kind of It's so wonderful to hear your voice and to hear your enthusiasm and to, I mean, Diane and I are just sitting here grinning ridiculously at your positivity. And I want to um, close this conversation with the, um, your email signature. You have this wonderful um, line in your email signature. Will you tell us what that is and what that means to you? It says, it's a great day to be alive. And that is so true. I think, you know, I I have a terminal illness. That is the truth. And I hope that one day that we can make a, a chronic disease or even curable would be even better. But the truth is none of us know how much time we have. None of us know if we're going to be hit by a car and the chances of that are actually greater than, you know, getting some of these cancers and things like that. So I think that we have to make sure that we realize that each day is a gift and that life is precious. And today is a great day to be alive and to make every day count because we we really aren't guaranteed any days. Thank you so much. That is so true. And uh, I can't tell you how much we appreciate talking to you and, and hearing your smile come right through the microphone is just beautiful. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time today. All right. Thank you, guys. We hope you're enjoying the LCFA Hope With Answers Living With Lung Cancer podcast. It's produced as part of our nonprofit mission, the support and expansion of lung cancer research accomplished by raising funds that serve to increase the public's awareness of lung cancer status as the leading cause of cancer death, inform and educate lung cancer patients in their lung cancer journey, and fund innovative lung cancer research. In a recent podcast, we heard an incredibly insightful conversation about the challenges of responding to someone who's just been diagnosed with lung cancer, really any cancer, any life-threatening disease. And I was chatting with LCFA advocate Jill Feldman and a special guest, Stephen Pedro, manners and civility expert, um, health and science writer, and they brought so much wisdom and humanity to the conversation, and I am so grateful for that conversation. I had a ball. And you brought a lot of conversation. (laughs) I think you were a little chatty, but that's okay. (laughs) There were so many things to talk about, both from the perspective of the lung cancer patient, but also from the perspective of someone who wants to help support a friend or a loved one who's facing, you know, that really challenging diagnosis. 
In fact, there were so many topics that we decided to break the podcast into two parts, that whole interview. So we're going to do a little bit more with that today. Yeah. So we're going to jump back in with Stephen Petro, um, who but a cancer survivor himself. So he understands a lot of these um, tricky situations that come up for lung cancer survivors. And Jill Feldman, the LCFA advocate as well. And we're going to start with some of the astounding things that people have a tendency to say. That's true. Oh my gosh. When somebody has told them that they have lung cancer. When the attempt at humor goes wrong, and I am so ridiculously uh, guilty of this in my day-to-day life, because I've got sort of an oddball sense of humor. And I think that the first reaction of so many people in a moment of tension, like when someone has told you that they have lung cancer or they um, maybe they had no evidence of disease, but now they have progression or something like that. Because many, many people's first reaction is to try to break the tension with some humor. We have some of them, don't we? We do have some of the list here. Somebody responded, well, we've all got to die of something, which technically true, perhaps not the right thing to say. Um, a lot of people respond, we might get hit by a bus tomorrow. A lot of people have responded, let me tell you about my family member. They often have died. Right, right. <laughs> that, that was a great story to tell. Right. It's never like, oh, I had a family member and they're doing fine. Yeah, it's never that story. Um, someone was asked, oh, well, how many more kids do you want to have? Which, anyway, we'll get into that. Um, What's two members of our speakers bureau are nurses, and um, they've run into situations where medical professionals know the statistics around lung cancer, and so they have been shocked when she walks around the corner and they're like, "Oh my gosh, I had I had no idea you were still alive." Um, a lot of people are told, "Wow, you're so strong and you're so brave, and I just couldn't do it." Um, which Jill will will have you respond to that one. And we had one gal, also a nurse, say, oh, I had a doctor tell me, you don't need to worry about your cholesterol because you won't be around long enough for it to hurt you. So I don't know that all of these uh, are attempts at humor, um, but I think a lot of them are. And some of these, we all just kind of read them and our jaws hit the table. Like, I'm not sure if they're, if they're all attempts at humor, but I, <laughs> because many of them are not funny. Um, but I do think they are all attempts at connection. Mm, that's a great way to put it. You know, and that people are trying to to reach out to say something, something that is contextual in their minds, um, as misplaced as as that may be. And um, you know, and and you know, I guess I don't want to be like piling up on our friends and loved ones that you know, <laughs> everything that comes out of your mouth. You know, just don't say anything. The etiquette police are here, and we're gonna. You know, you know, make you feel bad. And on the other hand, I don't want um, those who are ill to also feel this burden to you know, have to process other people's feelings. You know, it's enough to process our own feelings. Um, you know, it's very common sense advice to just um, to say to all people, and we've all heard this from our mothers or fathers, think before you speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Jill, I think I'm going to add into sort of one of my standard answers around this too is why are you asking that question? You know, not in an, an accusatory way, but just why? And that will, as you said, you know, it'll probably show them they don't have a specific reason or they have an association and that will help to break it down. Um, so that, that was a really great point. 
Yeah. Well, and that's, you know, I, I never thought about it that way that people are looking to connect. I think that's a great explanation. And that's something that we could kind of educate our lung cancer community with as well. Just again, they don't need the burden of worrying about other people's feelings, but it does help to understand why those questions are asked sometimes. So I think that that really makes a lot of sense. I just, I'm in love with this discussion because I think it's so helpful and so, um, you know, we, we sort of talk about this a lot, but I love the idea of giving people some things to do and to say, because um, that helps me personally if I have something in my back pocket to be able to, you know, to fill that awkward space where I need a moment to, to think about how do I, how do I connect here? What's the right, right way to respond? You know, a lot of times we get upset about certain things that people may say or do or not do. And I have my mother in the back of my mind saying to me, you can't get upset about something until you give somebody else the opportunity to explain. And so I think about that and I'm like, okay, so I need to understand. And it really calms me down, actually, by, by using the question because I think, well, okay, why? You know, whatever it is. So yeah, that's, uh, that's really interesting. And with, you know, the strong and the brave, um, that's something, I mean, you know, I was 13 when my dad died. I was in my 20s when my mom died. And everybody would always say, you are so strong. And it really became, and it's such a compliment, but it became almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy for me. So I, I couldn't show weakness. Everybody thinks I'm strong. Therefore, I need to act strong. I, strong people don't break down. Strong people don't have these emotional crazy moments. And so I don't think people really realize what sometimes using those words can do. And as a patient, um, you know, being strong, being brave, whatever word they use, it's like, what choice do I have? And some people will say, well, there's a lot of people who won't get out of bed. But the reality is, it has nothing to do with strength or me being brave. Everything that I conquer with this disease personally head on is out of fear, you know, I, I mean, really true fear. And so that's the emotion that I feel. And therefore, because there's so much fear, I need to find that control. And so it's really, you know, interesting to me again. And sometimes I'll explain that to people, but I, you know, I think for most people, hearing they're strong and they're brave is something that somebody's trying to say to be nice, but you might receive it differently. What do you think about that? I think it can do exactly what you said, which is then you are forced into a role. And we are such a binary culture. You know, it's this or it's that. And so strong is strong. And, you know, strong actually has many manifestations. And I, I, I practice yoga and 
uh, one of the strongest poses is when you're able to weave like a willow tree and keep your balance but move and um and sort of take in energy and take in you know shocks and so that's um you know that's not a way that we see strong that we see strong with you know with fortitude and muscles but it, it's it's limiting but again you know i'm sure when people said that to you they meant well that was probably i'm going to guess your outward manifestation i cry privately i'm not generally crying right we could, we could be getting into a gender thing too and you know i guess the other thing i just wanted to add which is sort of tangentially related i always encourage people not to say well if there's anything i can do please call or text me but say i'm going to bring over a casserole tomorrow night i know you have a dog i'm going to um walk him her them you know mondays and wednesdays but to say specific things that you can do to help out and not leave it in this vague thing and also not make it so they need to come back to you with an ask because that's that's a that's hard and those of us who are going through a diagnosis we're dealing with dependence and and independence and you know so having to ask someone for you know could you make me dinner could you walk my dog could you change my bed that's that's actually hard you know i'm so glad you brought that up because we heard from um a huge number of the members of the speakers bureau who said that exact thing um you know the first response that they asked for was i'm so sorry I'm so sorry. I'm sorry this happened to you. Um, you know, but I think it's what you're saying is beyond the, I'm so sorry, how can I help? Is there anything I can do? Um, and I love the idea of being mindful about someone's situation, um, being mindful, looking around and saying, uh, you know, one of, one of the Speakers Bureau members loves Christmas. She lives in the South. And so Christmas is a big thing. And she said, one of my friends said, honey, can I put up your Christmas tree? And she came over and she got out the Christmas tree and decorated the whole thing and decorated the house and put up all of the, you know, the bows and the ribbons and the ornaments and whatever, and then came over after Christmas and took it down and put it away. I want to know that person because yeah. <laughs> so work with the lights on a Christmas tree, I'm, I'm about ready to. <laughs> yeah. And I, you know, but Jill, you had mentioned, um, you know, thinking about the situation, the family unit as a whole, and I think along along these same lines. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, I, my dad, I was really young, but I really took care of my mom and my aunt. And when my aunt was really sick and dying, I had three kids three, under the age of three and a half. And you know, I had this response about, I was actually not working at the time, but finishing my thesis. And you have all these other responsibilities and you're worried about your loved one that I felt like when I was diagnosed, everybody was so worried about me and helping me. I wanted to make sure that my husband and my kids were getting what they needed. It was, I was, I got everything I needed and it really was important to me because I truly, having been on both sides, in a lot of ways, it's so much harder to be the loved one, the caregiver than it is to be the patient and depending on your situation. And so like in a situation when I was diagnosed, what I loved 
was that, yes, I mean, I have four kids. They were six, eight, 10, and 12. I, I didn't have, my husband and I didn't have to think twice about all of their sports schedules or Hebrew or music lessons or whatever they had. It was all taken care of by friends and meals were. And one of the things though I said is, um, you know, we used to sit down with my kids and talk to them about food because I also wanted them to be involved. So I do think it depends on the situation, but the people who do just step in and come do those things or do your laundry, that makes a world, a world of difference. And I really, I one, one of my biggest though was I would say to people, can your husband take Jason out? You come sit with me, we'll watch a movie, have dinner. Jason needs to go out. My husband needs to go out. And he appreciated it more once, you know, everything was all said and done. So that was really, really helpful. You know, and that's such a good point about taking care of the caregiver, because that gets lost in this conversation, too. So that was a beautiful thing that you did for Jason. Yeah. And I only knew it because of my experience. You know, you can't expect people to know it. And so that was helpful. Another way I see that the burden can be put on the patient uh, negatively is, or even the caregiver, or the loved one negatively, is when people say, you have to be positive. Stay positive. And I think a lot of people, I had a friend, a young friend whose mom said, if you put lipstick on every day when you get out of bed and you stay positive, you're going to do great. Her mom would say that to her. And it was really upsetting to her and to most of us. Because it, it, again, it puts the burden on us. If we're not positive, then, and if something happens, then the burden is on us. So, well, maybe we should have been more positive. And what I like to do with that too is I'm realistic, I'm pragmatic, and I have a good sense of what makes sense. But I definitely am able to find silver linings and live by what I know today. That cannot happen overnight to newly diagnosed patients though. So I'd like to know your thoughts on how could newly diagnosed patients deal with that statement, I guess. So when I was a patient um, at Sloan Kettering, and, um, and I know this is true at other cancer hospitals, they have amazing groups for people to join for newly diagnosed, for long-term survivors. But I was in, in a group of newly diagnosed um, men with testicular cancer. And so I got to hear the journeys of others who had gone on much longer. So I think in a way, in the same way that we're having this conversation and hopefully people are listening to that and benefiting from this advice, um, that is one way. There are other online groups people can join too that um, you know, not only support, but um, allow people to act as, as role models. And then we just have to give folks time because and everybody's gonna take their own time to get from point A to point B. And, and, and further down the, down the track. You guys, I am so grateful for this conversation. I think the whole thing has just been incredibly helpful for patients, for caregivers, for friends, colleagues, 
uh, I just can't express to you how how grateful I am, you know, that, that you both have taken the time to get into some of these thorny questions because yeah. they are thorny. They are. Thank you for the opportunity. Sarah, you said it. We are so grateful to Jill and Stephen for taking the time to really wrestle with some of these incredibly difficult discussions and situations. Yeah, well, I had a ball. I had an absolute ball talking to them. Hey, we'll be right back. Want more with Hope With Answers? Visit us online at lcfamerica.org where you can find out more information about the latest in lung cancer research, new treatments, and more. You can also join the conversation with LCFA on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. This is called the Hope With Answers Living With Lung Cancer podcast. And recently, we got the most incredible validation of why we're doing this podcast. Yeah, you may have seen it. There was a lot of coverage about it. The American Cancer Society released its report of facts and figures for 2020. And in that, it showed a record drop in cancer deaths with the drop in lung cancer mortality rates leading the way. It is, yep, woo! It is a clear indication that there is hope for lung cancer patients today. There's still so much to do, so don't get the wrong idea. We got a long way to go here, really long way, but the fact that we're making progress is fantastic. So to get some perspective on this, let's check in with LCFA co-founder and president, Kim Norris. Kim Norris, you are the LCFA co-founder and president, and I know we're catching you on a very busy day today in between flights at the airport. Thanks for joining us. I'm glad to be a part of this. Thank you. Well, You know, you and I have been talking about, as we've been working on this project, this is the Hope With Answers Living With Lung Cancer podcast, and we are trying to bring hope into the lung cancer space, and it's so rare that you get validation of something like this, which is what happened yesterday. This article came out about a tremendous drop in cancer deaths and leading the way are a drop, a significant drop in the rate of lung cancer deaths. Can you talk about quickly how research, lung cancer research, factors into this drop? I am happy to do that because the validation that we got yesterday made me feel so good in that what I've been witnessing for the past 10 years in the area of research and the rapid development of change in treatments from targeted therapies to immunotherapies that didn't exist 10, 15 years ago. And I'm seeing a tangible difference in people's lives. I know many, many lung cancer survivors, patients that are living five, even 10 plus years. And I mean living good quality lives. And that's all because of research. I can't thank the researchers enough for what they've done and the difference they're making, the tangible difference they're making. It also makes me proud in that when we started LCFA, Lung Cancer Foundation of America, it was all about funding research and trying to attract the best and the brightest to lung cancer 
to make a difference. And in our own little way, I feel like we've done that. We have funded some amazing young investigators and gotten them started on their, their journey in the world of lung cancer research. And they're already making a difference. So it does make me feel good. And the validation comes as a result in many different shapes and sizes. And it's just nice to get that tangible validation of what I feel and what I think I've witnessed over the last 10 years. What an incredible validation of all the work that you and the other co-founder and board members of LCFA have been working so hard to help come to fruition. And, and, you know, there's a long way to go. There's much work to be done, but to start to see that change and be able to truly say this is a hopeful situation is incredible. It also tells me that we can't rest on our laurels. So we've now proved that research can make a tangible difference in people's lives. And lung cancer, though, is still severely underfunded in its relation to public health and in its relation to the amount of funding it receives compared to the other major cancers. Imagine if lung cancer funding, research funding, was on par with those other major cancers, the difference we could be making. Wouldn't that be amazing? So now is not the time to sit back and say, good job, we're done. We're just getting started. We're just getting started. I love that. Well, I know you are racing between flights today, and I am so grateful to be able to catch up with you and talk about this new development that just came out yesterday and to take a moment to celebrate and also double down on our commitment to raising funds for lung cancer research. I appreciate your time and all your work. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you. Through the generosity of donors like you, LCFA is able to fund cutting-edge research that will lead to new treatments and protocols with the goal of greater survival rates for lung cancer patients everywhere. We can't do it without you. Consider making a donation by visiting lcfamerica.org and clicking on the Donate button. Well, another packed show today. Mm -hmm. And to quote Gina Hollenbeck, It's a great day to be alive. We love that. A huge thank you to Gina for sharing her story. Absolutely. And another big thank you to Jill Feldman and Stephen Petro for talking through some of the thorniest questions in, in lung cancer and in just cancer in general that patients often face. What a fascinating conversation. I truly enjoy being a part of So much. It was news you could use, you yeah, know. Right. It was really, it was great. So thanks so much for listening to the Hope With Answers Living With Lung Cancer podcast. Until next time. The Hope With Answers Living With Lung Cancer podcast is produced by the Lung Cancer Foundation of America. Find more information online at lcfamerica.org. Thanks for listening.